0: Today, we are summarizing three big topics, abortion, euthanasia, and the death penalty. And when you do later theology topics, you'll get a long, in-depth treatment of these things. I'm trying to give you today um, just a brief overview. So, abortion, euthanasia and the death penalty. You're all aware that Pope Francis revised the catechism paragraph on the death penalty. Um, John Paul II said he was going to revise it, even though he had produced the first catechism. His encyclical Evangelium Vitae, he said, okay, we've developed the tradition slightly here. We're gonna modify this paragraph. He never actually did. So the revised version actually came out under Francis. We'll comment on that more in a bit. Two things I want to put in contrast, the culture of death and the gospel of life. So John Paul II, an amazing figure, um, he notes, great for coining many phrases, he said, what characterizes the world we're living in today, the culture of death? And we can see this under two things that were dominant in his time, um, communism and unbridled capitalism. Communism less powerful today, but it is still around. We see some of the legacies of the attitudes he's pointing to, particularly, say, in China. What does it mean to refer to the culture of death? Death is the solution to your problems as a society. Mm. How does that play out? So there's an inconvenient baby and you kill the unborn. There's indignity in old age, so you kill the sick in euthanasia. And there's crime, so you kill prisoners. We'll note that these two, abortion, euthanasia, these two the Church calls intrinsically evil, whereas the death penalty is circumstantially evil. Circumstantially evil meaning, in our circumstances, the recent popes are saying it is simply not appropriate as a means, whereas abortion and euthanasia, intrinsically evil, remember when we talked about intrinsically evil acts and the end not justifying the means, intrinsically evil is never morally possible, Uh, whereas the death penalty In the tradition of the church, yes, there are some circumstances when it's an appropriate tool to justice, tool to protecting the common good, um, but not in our circumstance. In contrast, the church proposes the gospel of life. We'll note with this a phrase, a consistent, a consistent ethic of life. Implying that all these issues are linked, even though they are distinct. that all human life is sacred and thus direct and intentional killing is intrinsically evil. Meaning always and everywhere. We're later going to look at what the death pen, what the Church says about just war and killing in self-defense. So, it's not all killing that's problematic, it's direct and intentional killing that is problematic, or problematic evil, intrinsically evil. Okay, we all got that down. And let's turn to page one of the lecture notes. So you'll see these first two pages are actually not from the catechism itself, but I think this is important contextualizing for us to understand what the catechism is articulating. So the first page there I've called the culture of death. So I say, in 1995, Pope St. John Paul the Great coined this phrase, the culture of death, in his encyclical Evangelium Vitae. And he noted that contemporary society uses death as a solution to its problems. So we kill the unborn to avoid unwanted pregnancies. We kill the terminally ill and disabled to avoid caring for them. And I know it seems a long time ago to you, the 20th century, but not to all people. So, but it's still, to understand what's relevant in our society, we do need to know where we've come from. So the 20th century, when he coined this phrase, had seen the value of human life disregarded in many different ways. So communist ideologies only valued the collective. And you know, in Marxist thought, that is what matters, the collective. So the Soviets' great purges, was it, 22 million, Stalin killed of his own people um, for the collective. China's great leap forward, likewise, Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge. But, John Paul II also noted, consumer capitalism's sacrificing at the altar of profit and pleasure and convenience. Hunter, could you read that quote for
1: us? The powerful. No. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. A war of the powerful against the weak, a life which would require greater acceptance, love, and care is considered useless or held to be an intolerable burden and is therefore rejected in one way or another. A person who, because of illness, handicapped, or more simply just by existing, compromises the well-being or lifestyle of those who are more favored tends to be looked upon as an enemy to be resisted or eliminated. In this way, a kind of conspiracy against life is unleashed. This conspiracy involves not only individuals in their personal, family, or group relationships, but goes far beyond to the point of damaging and distorting at the international level relations between peoples and states.
0: Okay, we all recognize that as, in many ways, a description of our world. Yeah? And even though you might well believe America is the greatest nation in the history of humanity, the most Christian nation in terms of incarnating the gospel to yet arise in the history of the church, it is still uh, deeply flawed. So the culture of death, yes, in the communists, but also in our own homes. So I say he called for, in contrast, the development of what he called a culture of life, in which respect for the dignity of the human person, he said, calls for a renewed way of treating and valuing the human person. And he dwelt on the scriptural choice, you know, put with Moses, I set before you life and death. What are you going to choose? Michael, can you read this quote for us? So this is reflecting on Deuteronomy, but it is from Evangelium Vitae.
2: For us to Moses' invitation rings out loud and clear. See, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life, that you and your descendants may live. This invitation is very appropriate for us who are called day by day to the duty of choosing between the culture of life and the culture of death. But the call of Deuteronomy goes even deeper, for it urges us to make a choice which is properly religious and moral. It is a question of giving our own existence a basic orientation and living the law of the Lord faithfully and consistently. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, then you shall live. Therefore choose life, that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and cleaving to him. For that means life to
0: you and length of days. Okay, so culture of death uh, and culture of life. Uh, these, as I said, this our summary of the fifth commandment. We're going to put all this in this context. So over the page. How many of you have heard of the phrase "a consistent ethic of life"? Some of you. It was probably more in vogue a generation ago. Um, it is still a phrase out there. So, I say, the above phrase, a consistent ethic of life, has been used by various figures, but sometimes problematically. What's the problematic usage, as I phrase it? Well, I say, the phrase has been used by some to imply that all moral issues are equal. It's a seamless garment, was how the pacifist Eileen Egan put it. So that abortion is equated as being... No more significant than war or social injustice or unemployment or economic injustice. But all these things are wrong. There's a seamless garment. No prioritising. Well, how might we prioritise? Well, I, I put some statistics there. So if we think about abortion. So 19, uh, the year 2017, in terms of the collation of annual statistics, was the last I could get all the figures together for. So you can see nearly a million abortions per year, which is down from a high uh, high point, you know, more, more than two decades ago. Still 60 million abortions since the US Supreme Court made it legal. Um, as I note there, we've got some states where it's illegal, majority it's still legal. Um, The Iraq war, how might we compare that? Well, if we looked at military deaths, um, our side had over 5,000, the Iraqis over 27,000, let alone the number of civilian deaths. Death penalty, so in the year 2019 alone, uh, 22 executed, 34 with death sentences imposed, nearly over two and a half thousand people waiting on death row um, and over one and a half thousand executed since the US Supreme Court reinstated it in 1976 legal in 28 states and then another issue health insurance so the year 2019 eight percent of Americans didn't have health insurance that's a lot Greatest culture, greatest nation in the history of, of the world, eight percent don't have access to healthcare. Should that not be seen as deeply troubling?
2: Have you ever had? Uh, does Great Britain? Or-
0: we have socialized medicine, as you have would you call ever it.
2: Been a part of, you know, universal healthcare system.
0: Most of my life, yeah,
2: yeah. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, sorry. Like, so we experienced it in Canada, and it was awful.
0: Okay, I'm not trying, to, I'm not, I'm not trying <laughs> yeah. to say that that is better. I'm just saying these are issues, okay? okay. My dad
2: broke his rib and they gave him a piece of paper and he said...
0: Yeah, you're <laughs> not letting this rest, are you? Yeah, hours. yeah. You, you're very upset about the election results today? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, okay, so I asked the question in bold there. Is there no logical priority in addressing these issues? Or is it only a seamless garment? Now, if you looked at the statistics, you'd say, well, abortion is the most frequent issue here. Though you might say, actually, health insurance, actually even more millions. My first point is that the statistics alone, that isn't really a coherent way of saying what's the most important. What would be an authentic way of referring to this? Well, you all heard of Father Frank Pavone? Um, So he's the national director of an organization called Priests for Life. I guess he must be fairly old now, he must be even older than I am. But over the decades has been an incredibly influential campaigner on the issue of life across this nation. Uh, So he's among the hardcore pro-life campaigners, but he endorses this phrase, consistent ethic of life, but uh, interprets it in this manner. Brother Adam, could you read that to us?
3: Some interpret consistency to mean of equal importance or urgency. That is a common misunderstanding of the teaching. The heart of the consistent ethic is precisely the linkage of the issues, but there are specifically different issues that are linked. Some people see life issues as linked arith- arith- arithmetically.
0: Arithmetically.
3: arithmetically. They are lined up and counted. Actually, they are lined up geometrically. In their 1998 document, Living the Gospel of Life, the US bishops use the image of the house to depict the many interrelated rights and issues impacting human dignity. The foundation of the house is the right to life itself.
0: Yeah, it's always great when the professor reads out the word arithmetically because there's a 50% chance I'm going to make a mess of it too. So. Um, Do you see his point? So he's saying, saying these issues are linked is not the same as saying they're all the same. But there is a link, that the dignity of life is impacted by all of these different things, but impacted differently. They are different issues that are linked, but they are linked. So the last time our US bishops um, came out with a statement on this um, before the last presidential election, the statement, Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship, they said, the threat of abortion remains our preeminent priority. it would be possible, I'm throwing out a speculation here, to say, well, if the Supreme Court has actually no longer got that ruling against us, might something else become our preeminent Priority politically. I'm just throwing that out as priority politically is a very contextualized assessment that needs to be made.
2: Oh, can you
0: explain preeminent? Yeah, that's a good question. What on earth did the bishops mean by preeminent? They don't really say. They are saying any other issue you're going to point to, this one's bigger. You think unemployment is a serious issue facing our nation? Un- uh, the right to life is bigger. Um, you think um, healthcare is a tragedy? Abortion, preeminent, is partly an answer. There is a long document. I quote a bit of it on the next page. Um, uh, We're not going to go through that in detail, but I'm just floating that out there in terms of what the bishops have said. I then finally have a quote there from the author George Weigel about this phrase, the consistent ethic of life. He says, intentions aside, however, that consistent ethic inevitably blunted criticism of such determinedly pro-abortion Catholic politicians as Ted Kennedy and Robert Drinan. Um, So I'm giving you this phrase, some comment on it, an authentic interpretation of it, because it has been used to kind of dilute the significance of these light issues. Okay, we're going to move on and actually get on to what the Catechism itself says on these issues. So page four, please, of your notes. So the fifth commandment, what is the fifth commandment? You shall not kill. Now, what's the basis of this? The basis is human life is sacred. Uh, Jake, can you read why uh, at the top there from the catechism?
2: Human life is sacred because uh, from its beginning it involves the creative action of God and it remains forever in a special relationship with the creator, who is its soul and God alone is the Lord of life from the beginning until its end. No one can under any circumstance claim for himself the
0: right directly to destroy an innocent human being. Now what does that mean? So in bold I say next, you may never directly and voluntarily take innocent human life. So take the meaning of the fifth commandment is specified in Exodus just after the Decalogue. So you've got the Ten Commandments, one of them you shall not kill. What does that mean? Very shortly after, that same book tells you what it means. John Paul, can you read to us? This is the Catechism saying, Scripture specifies, And I then say, understanding this teaching is pivotal if we're to understand why we may kill animals, we may kill in self-defense, why death and warfare is not excluded, as we'll note in a future lecture, but what is meant by killing. So this prohibition describes what's called an intrinsically evil act, i.e. evil in all circumstances for any motive. And the prohibition is directly and voluntarily taking innocent human life. And this specification is biblical. So it's not invented by some later theologians or bishops. And if you reject the specification, you reject the Bible. So, what's meant here? Direct. Uh, the fifth commandment forbids direct and intentional killing as gravely sinful. Now, how are we going to direct? What's the word direct mean? Well, what does indirect mean? Josh, can you read to us?
2: The fifth commandment forbids doing anything with the intention of indirectly bringing about a person's death. The acceptance by human society of murderous famines that efforts to remedy them is a scandalous injustice and a grave offense. Those who whose serious and various serious dealings lead to the hunger and death of their brethren and the human family indirectly commit homicide which is imputable to them.
0: Usurious is the word there, a word you have probably never actually seen before to think what on earth it means. Anyone able to tell us what usurious, what usury is? Behaving
1: with usury or like uh, extortion? Manipulating. Like you're bathing you're bathing. taking from someone more than you're supposed to take from them or you're lending at interest that's too high? That
0: so, the, the the, right, so the the classic framing of the the thing of usury Um, is lending with unreasonable interest, which therefore is in a sense a form of theft, unreasonable interest, or lending with a condition that is just unreasonable. Um, uh, What's the Shakespeare play where he gets the heart if he fails to... Merchant of Venice. Merchant of Venice, right. A wild example of an unreasonable condition but usury in its various forms is thus prohibited um, the other word there is avaricious dealings so if your form of capitalism your form of trade ranks profits in such a way that you're happy to have famines that kill millions as a side effect That is imputable to you is what the Catechism is saying. Um, So an indirect but intentional bringing about of death is also forbidden in this commandment is what the Catechism is saying. Intention of indirectly bringing about. um, Accepting famines and such is also forbidden. But the commandment itself is about direct and intentional killing of innocent human life. Comments? Do we understand what's being said here? And why, therefore, killing in self-defense is not killing an innocent, so it's therefore not directly related to this commandment, or it's related but isn't Forbidden by this commandment. Um, so the commandment is about direct and intentional innocent life. Okay, there's lots of specifics in this lecture, so let's move along to our first specific, page five, abortion. First question on the top of the page, ensoulment. How many of you have heard of this question, ensoulment? What's meant that there is a moment when the soul enters the body? When does that moment happen? So to start by, I'll I'll read this little section and then we'll make sure you understand it. I say, the tradition and the magisterium have no unanimous answer to this question. What moment does the soul enter the little embryo? So, for example, St. Thomas, following Aristotle's primitive biology, held that ensoulment was long after conception. I say, regardless of ancient uncertainty about when the soul was infused, the tradition has always taught that abortion was immoral. Eric, can you read that quote since the first? <clears throat>
2: since the first century, His teaching has not changed and remains unchangeable. You shall not kill the embryo by abortion and shall not cause the newborn to perish.
0: So that's quoting from the Didache, the teaching of the apostles, the very first post-biblical record we have of the church's teaching. Uh, So from the very beginning, as soon as we have records, the church has always said abortion is forbidden, is evil. And said that even though, so Aristotle's primitive biology. Now, why am I pausing and saying this? You'll sometimes hear a certain type of Catholic trying to be clever and saying, well, you know, the early church didn't think that the embryo was a person. The early church didn't think the soul was in the embryo yet. So really, you know, early abortions are are just very different. Um, and that's a twisting of the historical process. Because from the very beginning, abortion was always forbidden by the church, even though biologically, Aristotle, until modern microscopes and so forth, um, they didn't know what was going on in the early embryo. So Aristotle would have been able to look at many spontaneous miscarriages and see that what comes from the woman at the various stages looks very different at the different stages. And without a microscope, or, you know, you're just going to have a a mess at many of the early stages, something that looks formless, looks like it isn't a person yet. Um, but was does Dr. Seuss say? A person is person, no matter how small. Um, we now are able to see at a very early stage, uh, a visible form of a person, in a way Aristotle couldn't. We can say, when you'll look at this in Bioethics with me, um, within three minutes of the sperm entering the egg lining uh, of the unfertilized to then fertilized egg, within three minutes data is formed and a trajectory is established that patterns the whole line of development. Um, so in the same way that um, the baby is in development to the adult, before the baby, what the line of development is going to be is established in the first three minutes. No way Aristotle could have known that. No way St. Thomas could have known that. So when they are saying, well, at what stage does what we have look like a human body to therefore have a human soul, they're giving answers much later than modern science would look and say, here we have matter disposed, apt for a human soul. You can see you could have a couple lectures on this point in a bioethics course. This isn't a bioethics course. I'm just touching on this point, even though primitive biology couldn't answer these questions. um, The church always said abortion was immoral. The church, in terms of her basis in divine revelation and thus her authority to teach Uh, not an opinion, but what is divine revelation, is hesitant to comment on anything that is overly reliant on scientific data. So we'll see in the church documents in this period and in the catechism, the catechism deliberately bypassing the science questions to make an ethical judgment. So what's the ethical judgment? Next paragraph here, you are to treat it as a person will bypass philosophically bypass scientifically is it a person and will say you must ethically treat it as a person and thus in the quotes there i've pulled out that word as okay what do i say word for word i say the catechism following the trend of magisterial documents of the 20th century argues that the embryo must be treated as if it was a person bypassing the question of whether it is a person. I so say the embryo is definitely a human being, it's not a frog. Um, the catechism bypasses that philosophically complex question of defining a person. Any of you want to give me the definition of a person? No, I'm not expecting you to be able to. somebody's done some Aristotle Um, Aristotle doesn't use the word person so we don't have the definition of it there actually the word person only gets invented quite late on so what's meant by the word person the catechism doesn't want to get distracted by that it's making the ethical statement human dignity calls for you to treat it whatever your meaning by this thing of dignity this word person you've got to treat the embryo the same way Francisco can you read that quote human life must
2: human life must be respected and protected absolutely from the moment of conception from the first moment of it, his existence a human being must be recognized as having the right of a person among which is the inviol- inviolable right of every innocent being to life before I formed you in the womb I knew you and before you were born, I consecrated
0: you. So that means, among other things, that abortifacient drugs that prevent a fertilized egg from implanting, they fail to grant personal rights.
2: Yeah? So there's a distinction between a human being and a person?
0: Philosophically, yes. Angels are persons, but they're not human beings. So it's just a different word, different concept. The catechism doesn't want to get, doesn't want to make a philosophical pronouncement, it wants to make theological and ethical statements. Because the risk, if you hinge it all on the word person, is different secular philosophers define person differently. So people like Peter Singer will define it in terms of self-awareness, self-consciousness. Um, the embryo isn't self aware, isn't self conscious. Depending quite how you define it, that doesn't happen till a baby's three years old. So many secular ethicists say, well, infanticide in those first three years is morally the same as abortion. This is a standard line among secular ethicists. Um Jay? That's a good question and they vary on that, they would, most of them want to differentiate between a permanent coma and a temporary coma. How would you that, necessarily? And philosophically, if they're going to say even a temporary coma, that only, you only continue to have human dignity if you have something like a nature of a person, even when it's not being realized in current consciousness. The instant you concede the nature of a person, you've conceded a metaphysics where our position is the only one that's coherent. So the church is saying abortion has always been immoral. Treat the early embryo as a person, regardless of the philosophical question of what a person is. Direct versus indirect. Now, the church is using these words. What's meant by these words? So, say so the catechism carefully specifies direct abortions as immoral. Now, in our course, we don't cover the principle of double effect because this is a basic course. Um, but the principle of double effect says that an unborn child's death can be an unwanted side effect of a treatment thus indirect. Um, then quote from an ethicist, Patrick Lee, um, Jake could you read that for us, if a Woman? So the example there, the woman has a cancerous uterus. Um, She will die, the baby will die. One solution is surgery that removes the uterus, but also therefore removes the unborn baby. Another solution sometimes is a um, chemotherapy of some form, but the chemotherapy targeted at the cancer is such a serious treatment it will kill the child within, but that is indirect, not direct. You are attacking the cancer even though you know the side effects of the death of the child.
1: So it's like the difference between bombing a population center and attacking a military base where there happen to be non-military
0: personnel? It is. And we'll come on to that example when we look at just war, but yes. Um,
2: so, what was the case with um, what's, it Gianna
0: uh, Her exact condition, I don't know. Let me flag up a different scenario, though. Or, um, so, a woman with hypertension. Uh, so, the high blood pressure caused by the pregnancy is a threat to her life. Yeah, so, her life is at threat. If she dies, the child within her will also die. Secular doctors will say, well, then abort the child, and you will no longer be pregnant, you will no longer have high tension, high blood pressure, Um, your life will be saved, the baby's going to die anyway, or the baby's at risk anyway. In that case, the abortion is direct. You are attacking the child as a means to the health of the mother. Which is different to doing something to the mother for her health that has the side effect of the death of the child. A more detailed analysis of that in a later course in theology.
2: I don't know if it was in the uterus but it was a tumor somewhere that if they operated would have killed the baby. That's what the case was.
0: Okay. And there are many cases where a woman might the cancer is going to threaten her life but she might choose to accept that threat to allow the child to live. Um, That would be a heroic act on her part, not a morally obligatory act.
3: Isn't there another case of like, when the embryo is like not implanted in the uterus, like in the-
0: Yes, what's called an ectopic pregnancy.
3: Yeah, what is it?
0: Uh, We're not gonna cover that in this course. but it will be satisfactorily covered in a later course. Okay, let's move on here. Briefly, a grave and excommunicable offence. So say the sin of abortion is a grave offence that brings an automatic excommunication. There are very few things in the church that bring an automatic excommunication. Automatic means there's no public pronouncement by the bishop, no public pronouncement by the pope. It just happens automatically by your having done this thing. Um, Hunter, can you read this quote from the catechism for us? Formal cooperation in...
1: Formal cooperation in an abortion constitutes a grave offense. The church attaches the canonical penalty of excommunication to this crime against human life. A person who procures a completed abortion Incurs excommunication latate sententiae? Yep. By the very commission of the offense. Okay. Um,
0: by the very commission of the offense. So, as I say, no pronouncement from the bishop. Um, again, you'll look at this later in pastoral theology, but uh, in any of your dioceses, your bishop will have given a priest the faculty that he can not only absolve the sin of abortion in confession but immediately lift the excommunication. Um, And even though a woman might come to me confessing abortion not aware of that I will try to indicate without trying to complicate her situation that all the penalties that go with this are all lifted right now. There's nothing left hanging over her. You probably don't want to tell her, by the way, you were excommunicated and I'm lifting that now. (laughs) Yeah, but she might find out a few weeks later that there's this excommunication and then wonders, well, what happened? So to try and say enough that she understands whatever there was is gone, Michael. Um the doctor, the nurse handing the doctor the scalpel or the suction device, um the boyfriend driving his girlfriend to the abortion clinic. Uh so many forms of formal cooperation.
2: Okay. Can just the, Is he automatically excommunicated for
0: not- pro abortion <laughs> the- um He's certainly not automatically. Um, There are those, well, and there's a difference between denying someone communion and being excommunicated. So in his case, to be excommunicated, his local bishop would have to formally excommunicate him on the grounds that this, that, and the other. Um, He definitely wouldn't fall under formal cooperation because this is about a particular case. I'm not going to go into, because this is an introductory course. I know you hate it when I give that comment, but Hunter.
3: Could,
1: I, I know this is probably another one that's like difficult, and we'll get to it later, but like paying for it?
0: Sorry, I, that I meant to, yes. Yeah. So that would be formal cooperation, okay. paying for it, yes. So paying for the abortion. And let me point out, even if you are half the world away and you wire the money to pay for the abortion, that's still close cooperation in moral terms. Yeah. Okay, page six. Um, I'm going to scan past the bits of the catechism about the need for life to be respected in law. That kind of follows out of what we were already saying about state law and the common good. The little section on experimenting on or testing an embryo. Say prenatal tests. So you know what a prenatal test before birth, prenatal, you test the fetus, the embryo, to see its health. Um, you might test its genetics, frequently testing something related to its heart condition. Say prenatal tests aimed at repairing a problem in the embryo are permitted. That's great. But prenatal tests aimed at identifying and aborting unhealthy embryos are immoral. Does that distinction make sense? There's another distinction that we won't elaborate here, but a test that risks the life of the child in a way that is unfair to the unborn child and isn't proportionate to what you're testing for. A related issue producing embryos in order that they might be experimented on. So, this is contrary to human dignity, and there's a lot of this that happens. So, you know, the doctors want to do stuff to humans to find out what happens. You create embryos and then you experiment on them. So, since it must be treated from conception as a person, the embryo must be defended in its integrity cared for and healed as far as possible, like any other human being. Pre- prenatal diagnosis is morally illicit if it respects the life and integrity of the embryo and the human fetus and is directed towards its safeguarding or healing as an individual. It is gravely opposed to the moral law when this is done for the thought of possibly inducing an abortion, depending on the results. A diagnosis must not be the equivalent of a death sentence. One must hold as licit procedures carried out on the human embryo which respect the life and integrity of the embryo and do not involve disproportionate risks for it, but are directed towards its healing, the improvements of its condition of health, or its individual survival. So in contrast, it's immoral to produce human embryos intended for exploitation as disposable biological materials. Understand the general category here? Again, the bioethics course, um, we'll look at this in much greater detail. The last related thing here in terms of things in the embryo, manipulations aimed at creating designer children These are contrary to human dignity. Um, Adam, could you read this quote for us?
2: Certain attempts to influence chromosomic or genetic inheritance are not therapeutic but are aimed at producing human beings selected according to sex or other predetermined qualities. Such manipulations are contrary to the personal dignity of the human being and his integrity and identity, which are unique and unrepeatable.
0: Okay, so in the womb, we test Brother Adam and he's not sufficiently Aryan, because he doesn't have blonde hair. So we alter his DNA to make him even more perfect and be blonde, yeah? Um, This is a kind of manipulation that is contrary to human dignity. Why is it contrary to human dignity? Because you're treating a person as a product. I'm going to repeat that phrase, treating a person as a product and we should not be designing babies in the same way that we design products. It's contrary to dignity to do that.
3: Is this something that's subject to intention? Like, could we manipulate genetic inheritance to say avoid sickle cell anemia or uh, any number of mental or genetic disorders like autism, for
0: example? So manipulating genetics to avoid sickness is different from enhancement. So there's a distinction made between therapeutic and um, just enhancement. Yeah, so the Soviets want the fastest runner. So they're going to genetically combine some leopard DNA into those legs. Well, you laugh, but we're already at the stage where they are combining human and animal DNA. Um, Yeah.
2: What about like two people that like superior athletes or whatever, and they're like, we're going to, you
0: know... Combine them.
2: Combine and have a kid so we can have, like, try to have an even better athletic
0: kid. Um... (laughs) So, yeah, we're not going to look at cloning in this course, but the problem with cloning, IVF, um, what's the manner of the person being created the same way you make a product? You make it in a laboratory. What happens in laboratories? You experiment on things. You're creating a person in a place, in a context, in a manner that is the same as where you create products and experiment on them and discard unwanted ones. It's not, it's contrary to human dignity. Humans are created as a gift, as a result of a intimate personal encounter between two people uh, and when properly done so two people who love each other and are committed to each other for life
3: yes
1: so if someone if they figured out like how to determine if someone would need glasses would that be something that is enough of a problem because it's easily treatable Yeah. and it's not and like put these on your face, and then you're fine. Like, Could they go in and fix that, or is that not a big enough problem?
0: Um, you can see that there is a something of a sliding scale here, and you'd be right to say, yes, there isn't a hard line between therapeutic and enhancement, but there is a line. Um, And that's all we're going to do in this course. And because they haven't yet got the scientific ability to specify the genes of the eyes, or even, dare we say, do we know that's a genetic thing, rather than at some level a developmental thing in the womb that might be linked with genes, but not directly genes? That there might be. Anyway, we're going to leave that there. Page 7, euthanasia. Okay, what euthanasia, literally the word means, the Greek, mercy killing. Mercy killing intentionally uses death as a solution to the problem of suffering. Josh, can you read um, that whole section?
2: Whatever its motives and means, direct euthanasia consists in putting an end to the lives of Handicapped, sick, or dying persons. It is morally unacceptable. Thus, an act or a mission which, of itself or by intention, causes death in order to eliminate suffering constitutes a murder, gravely contrary to the dignity of the human person and to the respect due to the living God, his creator. The error of judgment into which one can fall in good faith does not change the nature of this murderous act, which must always be forbidden and excluded.
0: There's a lot in the error of judgment, good faith. So there are people who, in genuine compassion, do the wrong thing here. But what is being done, a violation of human dignity. What's an alternative approach? My next little section, in contrast, the weak and the sick John Paul, can you read this line from the Catechism?
3: Those whose lives are diminished or weakened deserve special respect. Sick or handicapped persons should be helped
0: to lead lives as normal as possible. And as we look at the history of Christianity, we see this is one of our contributions to human civilization is hospitals to care for the sick to not discard them so ancient history there were hospitals for the wealthy there were hospitals for soldiers to restore them to function and send them out again to to fight for the nation hospitals to care for just people that are sick these didn't exist before christianity this is the this vision of human dignity is part of what christianity has brought to uh, to light in our understanding of how to treat each other. The reason could have uncovered that, but uncovers it with a greater clarity in the light of supernatural revelation. But did
2: ancient Judaism have the respect for the
0: other? Okay, the Judeo Christian tradition I'd want to link together there. But yes, you're right, you're right. I'd say it becomes more explicit in Christianity, but. Not as much, I, not as much. So when we don't find the great hospital movements in in Asia to, in the same way. S- uh, okay, moving on, proportionate and disproportionate care. We can discuss that longer outside of class. Uh, proportionate and disproportionate care. Say sometimes a treatment brings a burden that is greater than the hope for a result. So the treatment is disproportionate or extraordinary. And disproportionate treatment is morally optional. So treatment can be disproportionate to the hope for benefits due to physical pain or financial cost or psychological distress. So I give the example, the medievals consider the pain of amputation disproportionate to the hoped-for saving of life. So we have anaesthetics, general anaesthetics. Somebody has some horrible gangrene. If you do not amputate their arm, they will die. But the pain of sawing off an arm in the era before anaesthetics, that pain was so extreme, the medieval said, well yes, it will save your life, but the burden of the treatment is so extreme, you're not required to do that to yourself. If you'd rather just accept death, that is morally acceptable. So not every treatment that will save your life is morally obligatory. It needs to be a treatment proportionate in the sense that the burden of the treatment and the hopeful result have a proportion to each other. That includes the cost. So again, we won't look in this course, but um, a heart transplant is incredibly financially expensive. Is that proportionate to the outcome? Given that a heart transplant frequently doesn't result in a fully healthy person afterwards. Um, So the physical pain is part of the analysis. The financial cost is part of the analysis. Um, The psychological distress. How many of you know people that utterly freak out about hospitals and doctors? Um, Surgery even more so. That is part of the analysis. The burden of the treatment. So to say here, one may accept death rather than either administer to another or accept for oneself such treatment. Can you read discontinuing?
3: Discontinuing medical procedures that are burdensome, dangerous, extraordinary, or disproportionate to the expected outcome can be legitimate. It is the refusal of over zealous treatment. Here, one does not will to cause death. One's inability to impede it is merely accepted. The decision should be made by the patient if he is competent and able, or if not, by those legally entitled to act for the patient, whose reasonable will and legitimate interests must always be respected.
0: In contrast, ordinary care for the dying, even when you know someone is dying, ordinary care should continue. Even if death is thought imminent, ordinary care owed to a sick person cannot be legitimately interrupted. The use of painkillers to alleviate the suffering of the dying, even at the risk of shortening their days, can be morally in conformity with human dignity if death is not willed either as an end or as a means, but only foreseen and tolerated as inevitable. Palliative care is a special form of disinterested charity, as such it should be encouraged. The spelling out of what is burdensome, what is not, you will cover in bioethics at a later date. Yeah, yeah.
1: just a FYI, in the first
2: part, even when you know someone is yeah. drying, not
1: dying. I just wanted to clarify that. So that's what it says on
0: mine. it is does drying. say, yes, yes, okay, okay, We will, we will amend the notes. Drying is not an issue, dying is, yeah. Okay. Okay. Last issue: uh, the death penalty. So page eight here. See, the year twenty eighteen, Pope Francis amended the Catechism to further strengthen a point John Paul II had developed in Humana Vitae, namely that in a modern society with effective, stable prison systems. The common good of society can be protected by prison sentences without needing to execute violent criminals. That the church's promotion of the dignity of the person means, he said, the death penalty is inadmissible as a punishment. Now I know inadmissible is not a moral assessment but a legal one. It's not admissible to use this punishment in a court judgment. If the Catechism had used the phrase intrinsically evil, or intrinsically immoral, those would have been moral assessments, but the Catechism doesn't use those terms. Whereas in contrast, abortion, euthanasia, and the direct involuntary killing of an innocent human life, all of those are described by the Catechism as intrinsically evil. So the comment from the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith that was issued in parallel with that change in the catechism, noted that the revised catechism grounds this position on historical circumstances, namely on the existence of effective systems of detention which ensure due promotion of citizens and thus protect the common good. By rooting its position in a historical context rather than solely in natural law, reasoning, The catechism avoids saying the death penalty is an intrinsically evil act. So I thus summarise, the death penalty is thus theoretically possible, but practically inadmissible as a means. And thus American Catholics have a duty to campaign to abolish the death penalty in our nation. Now thinking as Catholics, what does the tradition say? I say, in the pre-Christian world, it was a brutal place and execution was common. The Christian tradition in keeping with our Jewish roots permitted the death penalty, but we can note some distinctions. I say, punishment was seen as medicinal, promoting change in the sinner. There was concern to allow the criminal time for repentance St. Thomas notes. There was a belief that punishment restores the balance of justice that the corresponding criminal act had disordered. But above all, a concern to protect the common good of society. Um, Hunter, can you read that quote from... So this is from St. Thomas, not from the Catechism. If the health of the whole...
3: If the health of
1: the whole body demands the excision of a member through its being decayed or infectious to the other members, it would be both praiseworthy and advantageous to have it cut away. Now every individual person is compared to the whole community as part to the whole. Therefore, if a man be dangerous and infectious to the community on account of some sin, it is praiseworthy and advantageous. That he be killed in order to safeguard the common good, since a little leaven corrupted the whole lump.
0: So I note St. Thomas's primary concern in thinking of execution is protecting the common good. So, what John Paul II uh, and Pope Francis are arguing is we can protect the common good in our modern society with a prison system. We don't need capital punishment. And as a witness to the dignity of human life, it is more helpful to campaign on abortion, euthanasia, if we're also campaigning uh, to avoid unnecessary death um, in in the death penalty.